My name is Jeremy Devins, and welcome to the Yoga Teacher Training Podcast. Before we start today, I want to let you know that I'm just a month away from opening my online yoga teacher training at quietmind.yoga. So if you're curious about this, interested, want to see what it's about, you can join the waiting list there at quietmind.yoga to be the first to find out when it goes live. But I'm going to be taking everything I've learned in my 10 plus years of yoga practice, 15 plus years in just general health and wellness, and uh, my own eight years of teaching yoga now at this point, started in 2011. Uh, So I love the origins, the history, the philosophy, the meditation, the pranayama. All the aspects of yoga are going to be included, far more than just the postures. So if you like to learn yoga in a very holistic, personalized way, in a way that you can share with other people that's very holistic and personalized to them, this is the training for you. And you can check it out at quietmind.yoga and join the waiting list. And doors will open on 9-9-19. And if you're listening to this after that, It'll be every spring and fall thereafter. So it's going to be a regular ongoing thing. And you can check it out at quietmind.yoga. So today's episode, I'll be talking about the history and origins of yoga, which is something that rarely, if ever, comes up in an actual yoga class. But I do like to find ways to infuse it through my teachings and my classes. And I do bring it up in my classes uh, because I think it's super relevant and valuable. And actually, just this week on Instagram, I uh, saw a conversation with someone talking about what is the definition of yoga. And, you know, people say, you know, maybe you shouldn't do handstands, but I think, you know, handstands are great. So there's a sort of debate happening that's a relatively common thing of what is really yoga? Like, is beer yoga true to the origins and essence of yoga? Is goat yoga true and uh, connected to the essence of yoga? Or are these just modern permutations? Or is all yoga that we know, the postures, especially in the West, is that all just some modern permutation of yoga? So we go back to, in this this episode today, we're going to go back to the first use of the word yoga in any text that we know of. And there's mention of yogis before this, and I'll get into that. Uh, But what does the oldest thing say? And how is that relevant today? Does it really matter what the oldest thing says compared to the modern things? These are important questions to talk about, and I'll share my opinions, but I really encourage you to just take what I'm going to share and use it to generate your own opinions and, and make your own conclusions. I wouldn't say there's any one right or wrong way. Uh, There's your way and what way resonates with you and feels most in alignment for you. So so I'm gonna encourage you to to stay connected to that throughout the, throughout, (laughs) I'm I'm just thinking like a practice here, throughout the podcast, uh, which, you know, what, how is it not a practice? What isn't a practice really? All right, so we're going to talk about these uh, these first uh, original writings about yoga and what they say. And if you want to see them yourself, you can follow me on Instagram, jeremy.quietmind.yoga, and see these things laid out in a nice little pretty uh, picture format that I've put for you, put together for you. Uh, so basically, we're going to talk about what is the first text to use the word yoga. Was it the Vedas? Was it the Upanishads? Was it something else? If you know a little bit of yoga history, you know the Vedas are the oldest written text to have anything to do with yoga, and the oldest written text to have anything to do with any religious or spiritual beliefs uh, that's still in use today that we know of. Uh, So it holds a lot of authority and weight in understanding these topics. But there's no actual mention in the original four Vedas 
about yoga. The word yoga isn't used outright until the Upanishads, which are essentially part of the Vedas, like the end of the Vedas, considered Vedanta, Veda, Veda wisdom, anta, end, so the end of the wisdom text. And the Upanishads are also, like the Vedas, considered received wisdom by the rishis, the seers of India, the people who would sit in meditation and receive this wisdom and then share it through mantra recitation, essentially, and you would memorize it orally. Over time, eventually, it was written down on palm leaves, but it was an oral tradition. And there are a lot of, there's a lot of overlap of yogic concepts, but the actual word yoga itself is not used in the Vedas, not until the Upanishads, the end of the Vedas. So there is a mention in the Vedas of the Kesan. These are essentially the proto-yogis, or possibly uh, the rishis themselves. So it's a little unclear, at least in my research and understanding, uh, who these people are, but uh, they're said to be covered in dust and uh, essentially described like yogis. They have long hair and they're wanderers and uh, modern day. Like if you ever watch the movie uh, Naga on Netflix, uh, you can see what these people might have looked like. The Kesan people mentioned in the Vedas. These are like the original yogis. So in the Upanishads, they actually elaborate on what yoga is. And they use the word yoga for the first time in written text. In the Kata Upanishad, written around 600 BCE, again, all the dates are, are speculative. Some say way older, some say more like 300 BCE, but at least somewhere around there. The Kata Upanishad. This is one of potentially hundreds of Upanishads. Uh, there's 108 that are considered canonical Upanishads. Right? So again, there's four Vedas, four giant books and text and then there's the Upanishads which expound on the Vedas and there's 108 of those and not all of them are considered essential right so the Kata Upanishad is one that is considered essential to the Vedas or to the Upanishads and that talks about the first use of the word yoga so let's see what it says and this is a quote the true self the Atman difficult to be seen full of mystery the ancient primeval one concealed deep within he who by yoga means of meditation on his self comprehends atman within him as god he leaves joy and sorrow far behind so in short the true self the atman is difficult to be seen but one who practices yoga as a means of meditation on the self comprehends the atman and feels connected to the, the Atman, the true self, and leaves joy and sorrow far behind. So this is echoed in a lot of teachings since then that essentially say that the yogi is one who is the same in all situations. So it's not affected by the dance of opposites, by good or bad, highs or lows. Uh, your tire blows out, you're the same. You're not thrown off, you're even keel. Uh, you win a million dollars, you're the same. You're not thrown off. You're even keel. So you leave joy and sorrow far behind. And to live in a Western world like I do and like I'm guessing you do as a listener to this podcast, you you face these things all the time. Highs and lows, ups and downs, uh, getting promoted at work, getting fired at work, uh, starting a relationship, ending a relationship, family members being born, family members passing away, right? So that life is full of these moments that can easily bring us joy or sorrow 
And a lot of the Western culture perpetuates that and makes it very commonplace to feel immense joy, immense sorrow, to seek joy and pleasure, to believe that if I buy the new iPhone, that will bring me immense joy and pleasure and solve all my problems. And if I don't have the new iPhone, I will be the laughingstock of my community and have lots of sorrow and sadness and feel ashamed that I can't have the new thing, right? So that's kind of an exaggeration, but there is that, there's that sort of thing in our culture where we are sort of entrained to seek pleasure and avoid pain. And that's ingrained naturally, but it's even more so in Western culture. So it's harder to maintain a Western lifestyle, householder lifestyle, and do these practices. Um, but this is where things like modern day practice, where we start to get attached to advanced postures and impressive asana and things that they put on the cover of magazine because it's all part of that system of seeking joy and pleasure and avoiding pain and having sort of standards of what joy look, should look like. And then if you don't have that, you should feel ashamed or you're not enough, right? But essentially that's all uh, an illusion. That's all not your true self. And this is what Shankara taught many years later, well past the topic of today's episode. But it's essentially right here in the Kata Upanishad around 600 BCE, around 2600 years ago or so. The true self is difficult to be seen, but by means of yoga and meditation on yourself, to be aware of yourself, you can comprehend the Atman within and feel connected to God and Source and leave the joy and sorrow far behind. So if getting into an advanced posture helps you feel like anything is possible, that you feel like you, you're connected to the Atman, which is, in a way, a limitless expression of the universe. Uh, there's, it's limited by your physical forms. Uh, but to overcome those limitations through our efforts and our tapas, so discipline, uh, can, I've experienced for myself, and maybe you've experienced, they can bring a sort of connection to something bigger than ourselves, but can also very easily become bait to be connected to ego, and again, that sort of cycle of joy and sorrow. So all this is, I think, you know, I'm sort of uh, expounding on this, but I think that's all contained in this amazing teaching uh, 2,600 plus years ago, that it's really the practice is about connecting to the true self. The Atman. The Atman is like a drop of the ocean. The Brahman is like the ocean. Atman is your soul. Brahman is the universal consciousness and soul. So you have your one drop of the ocean, and we forget that. And we think that we're separate from everything. And we need something to feel whole. We don't need anything to feel whole. We don't need to go anywhere. We don't need to do anything. We are enough. You are enough. You have enough. It's right there within you. And the practice of yoga is connecting to that and being aware of that. Noticing that you have an identity, a role you play, mother, father, son, daughter, employee, whatever it is, you're aware of it, uh, but you're not attached to it. And by means of yoga and meditation, you become aware of it and you reconnect to the true self. All right, so that's my interpretation of what that says. But there's more. There's a couple more mentions of yoga in the Kata Upanishad. In the next one, I'm going to quote here, this firm holding back of the senses is what is known as yoga. Then one should become watchful, for yoga comes and goes. Yoga literally means to join or to unite the lower self with the higher self, the object with the subject, the worshiper with God. 
In order to gain this union, however, one must first disunite oneself from all that scatters the physical, mental, and intellectual forces. So the outgoing perceptions must be detached from the external world and indrawn. When this is accomplished through constant practice of concentration and meditation, the union takes place of its own accord, but it may be lost again unless one is watchful. So, that's a pretty thorough explanation of what happens now once you've experienced this yoga, maybe for a moment, you've got to be vigilant about it, you've got to be watchful about it because there's always new shiny objects, there's always new distractions. And there's new things that will take us away from that connection to self. So we take the senses inward and take the, this is pratyahara, instead of putting the senses outward and seeing outward, hearing sounds outside ourselves, tasting things outside ourselves, we bring the senses and attention inward and withdraw the senses. And then we reconnect to that state of yoga. And again, this, as it says, it happens by its own accord but it's lost if, unless we become watchful. So we just set up the sort of circumstances. And one of my great teachers, Libby, who explained the eight limbs of yoga to me very well in my early, one of my first trainings, it's the samadhi is what happens to you. You can't make samadhi happen. You can't make yourself sneeze. You can't make yourself have to go to the bathroom. You can create the circumstances that will make it much more likely. You can drink lots of water. You can look at the sun. Uh, those things are going to make those things more likely. Uh, same thing with meditation, yoga, and the state of yoga that happens eventually of its own accord because we create the circumstances over and over again and we stop draining our energy on the things that are taking us away from that connection. And this is something I've done a lot over the years, a sort of energy accounting. So I'll just write down maybe all the things that all the commitments I have and which ones are still in alignment, which ones are no longer in alignment and that they feel like they're helping me feel more connected to Atman's, my true self, a source. And maybe they're feeling, starting to feel like I'm disconnecting. Maybe I'm attaching to this identity I had or this role I played or this idea of what I think I want. So the energy accounting can help you stay sort of centered and reconnected as things grow and change and evolve, because they always do. And again, if we're going to live in the Western society and the householder life, we're going to be constantly exposed to new possibilities, options, distractions, shiny objects, things that can take us away from ourselves. So it's an even firmer discipline to reconnect to the self. Another way I think of it is like tuning an antenna, right? If, you, if you're old enough to remember to have the physical antenna on your TV that you have to put in just the right position to get the signal, I feel like our bodies are just like that. And that's the point of all the asana and the postures. It's to open up the channels to get us into alignment. And then once we're in that alignment, to make choices that keep us in that alignment. So we can get tuned up and then go out into the world and do work that is in alignment with that. And I think that's really actually a more advanced practice than to just become a renunciate or ascetic and, and live in a cave. Not in any way to say I really actually know what that's like because I've never done it. But to me, I think there is a high level of skill involved in bringing that renunciate sort of spirit and that sort of detachment, that healthy detachment. Um, one of my teachers would say, not, not necessarily the word detachment, but relinquishment, that you're able to let things go and not take it personally and to see the sort of Brahman in all people and the connection to all people. 
to do that in the world, going through your job, your roles you play, and your family, and all these things, this all can be uh, an immense spiritual practice in my experience and, and perspective. So again, the, this firm holding back of the senses is what is known as yoga. So that we withdraw the senses from the external and bring it inward, but we don't stop there, right? As Westerner householders, modern practitioners, we do that to sort of recenter, recharge, realign, and then we go out into the world and share what we've learned and remain watchful and vigilant of our practice so that we notice when we get out of alignment and when somebody pulls us in a way that feels out of alignment and we come back to it. So the last uh, little quote I want to share from the Kata Upanishads, uh, one more mention of yoga is only when the manas, the mind, with thoughts and the five senses stands still, and when buddhi, the intellect, the power to reason, does not waver, then they call this the highest path. That is what one calls yoga, the stillness of the senses, concentration of the mind, and it is not thoughtless, heedless sluggishness. Yoga is cessation and dissolution. And this echoes what Patanjali would say a few hundred years later, yoga is chitta vritti narodaha. Yoga is the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind. So when the mind and the senses can stand still, which maybe you've experienced that in a yoga practice, maybe not. But over time, if you do practice regularly, from what I've experienced and seen, I think you will experience this at least for a moment at some point where the mind and thoughts seem to just pause and everything becomes a little lighter and more subtle and still. And the intellect no longer wavers and wanders and worries and doubts and thinks I have to do a million things. It's calm, quiet, and still. People often might ask, like, uh, how do I determine what's my ego desires and what's my true self? What is really a calling and what is just something I think I should do? How do I tell the difference? It's almost always, at least one of my teachers would say always, that that true self is quiet, calm, and still. And if it's fast, urgent, loud, and quick, and there's a sort of desperation to it, a clingingness, a grasping to it, that's not really you, that's your ego which is okay to have an ego, it's good to have an ego, but you gotta be aware of it as well because it can just bring you down all sorts of paths of suffering and disconnection from yourself and disconnection from others if you're not watchful of it. So when the mind is still, the sense is calm, the intellect doesn't waver, they call this the highest path and that is what one calls yoga, the stillness of the senses, the concentration of the mind. It's not sluggishness, it's creation and dissolution. So the, the sort of ego self dissolves into service of the Atman, the true self. So no longer are you just a role trying to accumulate wealth and accolades and fame and prestige, but now you're a role in service to others using that role, the wealth, the accolades, the power, the prestige, the, the resources you gain in service to the whole. And the Atman, the, the true self, is imbued in what you do and not forgotten in what you do, which uh, maybe you've experienced that. Like I, I remember having a job early on in my early 20s where I felt so disconnected from myself. Fortunately, I was able to listen to uh, whatever I wanted, I had headphones on, 
and I listened to Alan Watts, and that was the first teacher that really spoke to my soul. He talked about actually similar ideas. And I remember where I was standing the first time he mentioned the word yoga. It's like it spoke to a part of me that was longing to be expressed for my first 21 years that I knew was in there that was not getting out. And I've tried to find it in so many different ways. But when I heard the Alan Watts talk, I remember exactly where I was standing. And the moment I heard it, it struck me like my body, like I physically stopped what I was doing and stood there and knew this was a significant moment. And it was my, what I would describe it now is like he was speaking to the Atman within me that I knew was there and was trying to find. And now it was touched and heard and seen and acknowledged. And it opened up this whole door where it took me a while, but I started just listening to every Alan Watts thing I could find from there. And that led me down this path to meditation and then yoga to where I am now, where I feel like more than ever, I'm living in alignment with that, you know, at least in my a skewed perspective that I probably have blind spots like we all do but at least in my experience and perception I'm more in alignment with that than I've ever been and I think it's because of just having that little moment of noticing what it feels like and then following it and then building on that one little moment and having more of those moments where the mind stands still the thoughts stand still and I feel connected to my true self so I hope this is helpful for you in understanding the origins of yoga. So there's no mention of handstands. There's no mention of down dog there. Uh, there's not even any mention of sitting meditation, any asana at all, right? So interesting, isn't it? All right, so can you, can you experience these things doing a handstand? Hell yeah, of course you can. You can experience these things gardening, uh, writing music, playing music. Uh, if you're an actor acting, if you're a dancer dancing, you can experience this in any situation. And this is what bhakti yoga is, really the most common practiced, commonly practiced yoga in India. It's bhakti, devotion, and putting everything you do into what you do and letting the self dissolve. And you may have experienced those moments where you just get into some work or project or creative thing and time just disappears, right? You're doing it, that's it. It's, you got out of your way and you let your soul shine through and express itself in your creative work or your or your parenting or your work at whatever it is you, you're letting this thing come through you and that's yoga and you can do that sitting still you can do that in the handstand you can do it wherever you want uh, i don't think there's any sort of police that can stop you from finding that wherever you want to find it and any sort of perceived uh, limitation on that is you know, something you can just let go of that it's not really the truth the, the truth is that you know what's right for you you know what's in alignment for you and you don't need to prove that or validate that to anyone else and this gives us a guideline of what things we can look for and how we can know when we are for sure in alignment which is pretty amazing i wish i would have had this growing up uh, but this does gives us gives us some more pointers of where to look and definitely you can find this through asana practice or meditation practice or prayer practice or devotion or service to others uh, so what path brings this out most for you right is it dhyana yoga like wisdom studying these sort of scriptures and texts like this is it karma yoga being of service to others is it the asana is it raja yoga doing the physical practices and the meditation the pranayama and the mudra that's for you to decide your path and find what's in alignment for you and find your dharma and follow it and continue to listen to that still quiet voice within you that's what it's about 
It's not about what it looks like on the outside. It's what's happening on the inside, right? And you can find this in any field, any path, any pursuit, and it's up for you to find. So I hope this is helpful for you in understanding the origins of yoga and the sort of root definition. Again, I've colored this a lot with my own experience and my own perspective. Go back to the text yourself. Look at the Upanishads. They're amazing texts. It's unbelievable what's written in these, these texts that still holds up so well today. It's really mind-blowing the more I dig into it. And you can find these quotes yourself at my Instagram page, jeremy.quietmind.yoga. Or look at the show notes for this episode where I'll put links to two of my favorite translations and commentaries on the Upanishads. And you can check those on, uh, out on Amazon as well. Uh, one's by Eknath Eswaran, and the other one is by Jane, or Thomas Egenis. Thomas Egenis is called the Upanishads, a new translation. So those are both really great resources. And, oh, and I forgot, I didn't even say in this whole episode, Upanishad, what does it mean? It means to sit down near. So the idea is you would sit down near a teacher and you would learn these things again and things you would recite and repeat mantras orally and you would pick up these teachings over time. All right. So thank you for sitting down near the, your podcast, your headphones, or your, your phone today and listening to this episode. I hope you found it helpful. And if you want to learn all about in depth in the yoga history, philosophy, mantra, meditation, everything that goes into yoga practice, and teaching yoga, check out the Quiet Mind Yoga Teacher Training at quietmind.yoga. You can join the waiting list there. The next class opens 9-9-19, and then after that will be in the spring. So you have to wait six months, and then in the fall, in, in perpetuity. So it'll just keep going on after that. So uh, if you're interested in this round, check out quietmind.yoga and join the waiting list. You'll be the first to know when the doors open. All right, thanks for listening. And if you're enjoying this podcast, leave a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen so people can find it. It's a new podcast that always helps the rankings when there's reviews and uh, just give an honest review, whatever you thought of the show. And if there's someone you know who might be interested in this and learning more yoga traditional uh, sources and the old text and more than just the physical postures, then share this show with them. All right, and if there's something you want to see in future episodes, email me at jeremydevins at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and have a great week.